So Jesus is um, beginning a journey this morning. He is starting to head specifically towards Jerusalem. He's been about three years ministering and serving and teaching and healing all around Galilee in upper Israel. And now he's going to go to Jerusalem. This would be a trip that he takes every year for the Passover feast. All of the males in the country were required to go to Jerusalem for Passover. This will be his last Passover. And he is aware of what's going to happen to him. He very clearly tells his disciples what's going to happen to him. He says, see, in verse 18, we are going up to Jerusalem. The son of man will be handed over to the chief priests and scribes, and they will condemn him to death. They will hand him over to the Gentiles to be mocked, flogged, and crucified. And on the third day, he will be raised. This is the third time that Jesus has very clearly, very specifically said, this is what's going to happen, you guys. This is what you need to prepare for as we go to Jerusalem And for the third time, the disciples absolutely do not get it. They completely miss what he's saying. And I kind of like that about the disciples because I feel like as I continue to follow Jesus, as I continue to listen to his words and, and figure out how to apply them to our circumstances, my life in 21st century America... I'm always missing it. I'm always getting it wrong. I'm, I'm always getting confused. And it's, it's nice to know that I'm not the only one. Every single time Jesus talks about his upcoming death, he has to talk to his disciples about power and ambition. Because remember, Jesus... He says he's the Messiah, the Hebrew Jewish Savior, the one that's going to come and redeem the people, to save them out of their bondage, to be their great king and lord and leader. And and all of these things are wrapped up in the Jewish imagination of what the Messiah is about. And he keeps talking about this and the disciples are like, great, that sounds awesome. You're going to come and you're going to defeat the enemy and you're going to make us powerful again. And Jesus Every time he brings this up, has to go, no, no, this is not what power looks like. And it's the same situation this time. He he says this to his disciples. This is what's awaiting us in Jerusalem. And then James and John's mom, the mother of Zebedee's sons. Zebedee is their dad. It's possible that this woman is Jesus' aunt, We're not quite sure, but the way, if you put all the Gospels together, it seems like maybe James and John's mom is Jesus' aunt. She's traveling to Jerusalem with them for the feast. And Matthew writes, then the mother of Zebedee's sons approached him with her sons. She knelt down to ask him for something. What do you want, he asked her. Promise, she said to him, that these two sons of mine may sit, one on your right and one on your left, in your kingdom. So James and John's mom has this request of Jesus. She loves her boys. She wants to see her boys prosper. Back in chapter 19, verse 28, Jesus said that when the new world comes, you 12 are going to sit on thrones judging Israel, 
And James and John's mom's like, I guess, you know, everybody gets thrones, but could my boys have the best thrones? Because they're pretty great, aren't they? She's just being a good mom. Can my boys have the right and the left as you sit on your throne? These two positions would be the best, most powerful, most honored positions in the government of the kingdom. And Jesus says, Jesus doesn't speak to her, he speaks to them. You don't know what you're asking. Are you able to drink the cup that I am about to drink? And they say, we are able. And I love the confidence of that. A couple weeks ago, we're we're building a shed in our backyard and uh, Joanna and I were digging Uh, post holes for the piers with this big old auger, big gas-powered thing, and we got it stuck in the ground, and we couldn't couldn't get get it out. We had like these big old pipe wrenches trying to back it off, and um, my seven-year-old Nora's like, Dad, let me do it. She's confident. (laughs) She has no idea what it's going to take, but she's going to do it. And James and John are kind of like that. They're like, yeah, we can drink this cup, sure. What's the cup? Throughout the Old Testament, throughout the scriptures that these men would be familiar with, the cup is suffering. To drink the cup is to experience suffering. And Jesus says, you will indeed drink my cup. But to sit at my right and left hand is not mine to give. Instead, it is for those for whom it has been prepared by my father. And this turns out to be true. James is one of the first martyrs in the early church. He dies at the hand of King Herod. And you can read about that in Acts chapter 12. He's killed for his faith in Christ. History says that his brother John is arrested and tortured many times and the the king finally decides he's going to get rid of him and he has him boiled in oil. But as they lower him into the vat of boiling oil, nothing happens. He's miraculously saved out of that punishment and the, the, the Caesar finally goes, you know what, if we can't kill this guy, let's just banish him. And they send him to an island called Patmos, and that's where he writes the book of Revelation. But both of these men experience a great deal of suffering for Jesus. But Jesus says, the, the, on, the positions of honor in my kingdom are not mine to give, they're my father's to give. When the 10 disciples heard this, they became indignant with the two brothers. They probably wished that they would have thought to bring their mother to ask. That's a good idea, you guys. Because all these 12 men, they're friends, but they're all still struggling for power. They want to be the best. They want to be closest to Jesus. They They want authority and honor, much like all of us. And so Jesus has to teach them. And Jesus says in verse 25, He calls them over and said, you know that the rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them and those in high positions act as tyrants over them. It must not be like that among you. On the contrary, whoever wants to become great among you must be your servant and whoever wants to be first among you must be your slave. Just as the son of man did not come to be served, 
but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. So I want to take a look this morning at three things. I want to take a look at how we think power works. I want to take a look at how power actually works. And then I want to see how Jesus uses his power. The first thing, how, how we think power works. And, and it's important to set the stage here because Jesus and the apostles are talking about global government. The kingdom of God is not just some nice thing in your heart. It is the setting up of Jesus' kingdom throughout the world, beginning, he says, when he's on the scene, the kingdom of God is among you, on to today as we, the church, spread the kingdom of God around the world. What does power look like in the kingdom of God? And he says it doesn't look like what it looks like in the rest of the world. The, the rulers of the Gentiles, those unbelieving people, they lord their power over others. They act as tyrants. And we see this all around us. We see power being wielded in an authoritarian way, in a, in a manipulative way, in a secretive way. People, there's backroom deals and secret phone calls and classified memos and all kinds of things that happen around us. And that's the way people get stuff done in our world. I want to talk a little bit about politics this morning because it's an election year and I'm kind of terrified about the next couple months. But back in 2016, when our, when our current president was elected, there was a lot of talk in the church about why Christians needed to vote for him. And we, there, there was a, there's this overwhelming surge of Christian support for his campaign. One prominent evangelical, Tony Perkins, says this, he said, to explain this, he said, they were tired of being kicked around by Barack Obama and his leftists. And I think they are finally glad that there's somebody on the playground that is willing to punch the bully. And I've heard that a lot since then, that, that our president, he stands up for us. He, he gets into the fight and he fights for us. But the problem, friends, is that Christians don't punch the bully. Christians turn the other cheek. Christians deny themselves. They go the extra mile. They love their enemies. And my point here is not to say anything about Donald Trump, but to say that if we are looking to a worldly politician or a worldly political system to fight our battles, to spread our influence, to give us power, we are not walking in the way of Jesus. And if you're here this morning and you're like, yeah, tell them how bad Donald Trump is. We need to get Biden in. That's the same thing. If you think that the Democrats are going to overcome the Republicans and they're going to do something for the people of God that is missing, you're grabbing onto worldly power. Power for the Christian doesn't look like power in the world. Mike Erie says, the American church is in danger of using weapons that were outlawed by Jesus as means to justify ends in the name of Jesus. And when we look at how power works in the world and we latch onto it or we imitate it in order to get our godly agenda done, 
we're outside the bounds of the kingdom of God. He says, Jesus says, you're not supposed to act that way. You're supposed to be different. I've heard, I started campaigning for the Republican Party in 1994. I was 12 and I went door to door for Helen Chenoweth. If you know, she was a representative in Coeur d'Alene and I handed out flyers. And ever since 1994, you know what I've heard? This election is the most important election of our lifetimes. And every two years I hear the same thing. If we, if our people, if our guy, if our party, if our city council person, if our congressman doesn't get elected, then it's over for the church. It's going to be gone. We're not going to have any freedom and everything's going to fall apart and Jesus is, 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 it's a hopeless cause. And I found that that's just hasn't been true. Like we, regard, we made it through some Republican presidents and we made it through some Democrat presidents and we've got a Republican now and, and who knows what's going to happen in a few months, but the church marches on because the power of the church is the gospel of Jesus Christ. Jesus doesn't come to us offering earthly political power. He doesn't come and saying, I'm the king and you're going to sit on my right and my left and we're going to be authoritarian dictators over the world. He says, I offer you kingdom political power. And kingdom political power looks very, very different. Look at verse 26. It must not be like that among you. The people of God look very different. On the contrary, whoever wants to become great among you must be your servant. And whoever wants to be first among you must be your slave. So how does Jesus say power really works? First of all, Jesus doesn't rebuke the disciples for wanting power, right? He doesn't say, you should not want power. You should not want influence. You should not want to change the world. That's wrong and bad and ugly. No, he doesn't say that. He says, you're looking for power in the wrong place. You want to lord it over people. You want to use worldly governments as your model for power. And that's not how it works. The greatness of a disciple of Jesus is in service, and pay attention to this. This is important. I have a tendency to think service is what gets me to greatness. Like kind of like an internship. You know, you start at the bottom and you clean the toilets and you go get lunch for everybody and you work your way up until finally you have power. But that's not what Jesus is saying. Power for the Christian doesn't come through service, but in service. By being the least in the room, by serving others, by giving yourself away for others, that is what power is. What is a servant? A servant is someone who is trained to anticipate and meet the needs of others. You ever watch Downton Abbey? I really like Downton Abbey. But the scenes where they're eating dinner, there's always a couple guys just in the back just standing there and they're waiting and they're watching. Oh, somebody's glass is getting empty. I better go take care of that. They've been trained. Where are the spoons? Where are the forks? How does Lord Grantham like his coffee? All of these things, they are, they are there to anticipate the needs of others. A servant is trained by Jesus to see, to notice, and to meet needs. And then Jesus says, you need, if, if you want to be first, you must be a slave. A slave is 
obligated to fulfill the needs of others. They have a duty to fulfill the needs of others. Who are we obligated to, church? Jesus. We are obligated to Jesus. And the way we serve Jesus is by loving people. So I want to tell you a story about real power. This is... um, Pastor Richard Wormbrand speaking. He was, he's a pastor from Romania. He tells a story from the 1960s. He says, my former fellow prisoner, the Romanian Orthodox deacon John Stanescu, suffered in jail for his faith. Colonel Albon, Albon, director of the slave labor camp, was informed that someone had dared to preach in a cell. He entered the cell carrying a cane and demanded to know the culprit. When no one responded, he said, well then, all will be flogged. He commenced at one end of the cell and there was the usual yelling and rising in tears. And when he came to Stanisku, he said, not ready yet? Strip this minute. Stanisku replied, there is a God in heaven and he will judge you. With this, his fate was sealed. He would surely be beaten to death. But just at that moment, a guard entered the cell and said, Colonel, you are called urgently to the office. Some generals have come from the ministry. Albin left, saying to Stanisku, we will see each other again soon. However, the generals arrested the colonel. Communists hate and jail each other for no reason. And after an hour, Albin was back in the cell, this time as a prisoner. Many inmates jumped to lynch him. Now Stanisku defended the defeated enemy with his own body, receiving many blows himself as he protected the torturer from the flogged prisoners. Stanisku was a real priest. Later, I asked him, where did you get the power to do this? He replied, I love Jesus ardently. I always have him before my eyes. I also see him in my enemy. It is Jesus who keeps him from doing even worse things. Do we want power? Do we want influence? Do we want authority in the world? That's, that's what Jesus-shaped power looks like. It's laying down your life for your enemies. And this is, this is a sober word for those of us who lead, especially in the church. It's, it's very easy to grab onto worldly power. We see it all around us. It's how everyone acts. And inside the church, those of us that lead can very easily become authoritarian leaders. We can use manipulation. We can, uh, we can be involved in cronyism. Many of you have probably seen that kind of leadership play out in the church. But Jesus says it should not be that way. The church in our country, the church in in the West, has lost a great deal of power over the last several generations. And our gut reflex is to get that power back by aligning ourselves with worldly Sometimes it's worldly political leaders. Sometimes it's worldly business leaders. Sometimes it's the latest fad, the latest trick to get people to do a certain thing. 
but we're not going to get power back by imitating and aligning ourselves with worldly power. The only way that the world will see the power of the gospel is by sacrificing ourselves in love and service for others. And that brings us to the question, well, how does Jesus exercise power? Well, he says so in verse 28. Just as the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Who is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? Jesus. Jesus perfectly embodies the ethics that he teaches. He is the King, the Messiah, the Son of God. And Jesus is the only person who has every right to wield enormous power over others. He has every right to come into a room and force people to do his bidding. He would be justified in doing so. But he doesn't. He serves people. He gives. He loves. He dies. Not for those people in his party, on his side, his allies, his friends. He dies for his enemies. He lets them kill him out of his love for them and out of his love for us. He's taking this journey to Jerusalem and he knows what's going to happen to him there. It's going to go badly for him there. But the gospel writers shape the story of these events very specifically to show us something. And what they're trying to show us is the cross is the throne. Jesus is ascending his throne on the cross. Everything that we see from chapter 21 on with when he rides into Jerusalem and is praised as the king and even in his, his arrest and his trial and his beating and his mockery and the crown of thorns and the robe and all the things that are done to him, the Matthew's gonna be set telling us this is a coronation of a king. This is kingdom power coming to pass. And who is on his right hand and his left hand? Nobodies, criminals, enemies, other men that are crucified alongside him. Jesus unleashes the greatest amount of political power the world has ever experienced on the cross. If you, I, can't, I don't think we can even imagine what the world would look like today without the cross. Like, we don't have any framework for it because we've never been there. But the fact that we have hospitals and libraries and universities and orphanages and <laughs> modern society as we know it is because of the power of the gospel that was unleashed at the cross and the church that was born out of the cross and the resurrection of Jesus Christ and the ministry of the Holy Spirit going forth for 2,000 years, creating everything that's good about the world that we see is due to the power of the cross. Jesus breaks the hold of sin over humanity. He removes the sting of death for his people and he ransoms people away from the power of Satan. And as we struggle feeling like we don't have power, this is the kind of power that we should be praying for because this is the kind of power that we've been promised in the Holy Spirit. 
power that tears down strongholds, that destroys the powers of darkness, that changes people's hearts through the love of Christ. So as we get closer, I think we're, I think I saw it's less than 100 days till the election. Vote. Vote this November. It's a, it's a blessing that we have to be in a country where we have a say in our political process. Pray about it and, and vote for the candidates that you believe will best uphold the priorities of Jesus. If you're not sure what the priorities of Jesus are, Matthew 25 verses 31 through 46 is a good place to start. But we have to be people that remember ultimately that power doesn't come from Washington. Power doesn't come from Boise. Power doesn't come from City Hall. Real power, real power to change the world comes from the spirit of Christ inside of you. And it's been given to his people freely to exercise. And Jesus says, hey, James and John, you don't, you don't get it. You don't know what power looks like. Follow me to the cross as an example of what power looks like. Because of who Jesus is, because of what Jesus did, he has saved us. He has made us new people. And he has given us the ability to walk in power that no one else will understand, that no one else can comprehend. When the prisoner says, how, do you, how did you get the power to stand up for your torturer in that moment? It's because of the Holy Spirit inside me because I always have Jesus before me. And that's my prayer, that, that, we, would be, that we would be people that, even if we, if we see the world differently, even if we have different views about what's best for our city, what's best for our nation, that we would understand, even so, our power comes from the cross. Let's pray. You've been listening to the Revelation Church Coeur d'Alene podcast. Learn more about Revelation Church at revelationcda.com.